The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. As we dive into our new series today in the in the book of Ephesians, where we're going to be for the next couple months, we'll actually be up till um, right before Christmas is kind of when we'll we'll wrap up this series. So I'm so excited to to dive into this book. Before we we jump in, I want to say thank you um, to Caleb and to Ricky for preaching the last two Sundays. Are we not blessed with a great staff um, here at this church? Amen. And I I was so blessed and encouraged by them and. That's just two of our staff, right? We have such a faithful team here who serve in so many different areas and lead so well. So I'm so thankful for each and every one of them. Let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump into the sermon for today. God, we thank you that you are a good God who seeks after us. God, your love for us is truly beyond our comprehension. And so as we open your word today, would your spirit move in our hearts and in our lives, wherever we need you, whatever we need, we pray that you would supply for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are certain people that you always associate a phrase with, right? If you hear a phrase, you're kind of like, oh, that always kind of reminds you of, of a specific purpose. And so, so for instance, I won't even try and use an accent, but when I say the phrase, I'll be back, you know who I'm talking about, right? Or, or maybe if you're, that's a little dated for some of you, for those of you who are a little bit younger, if I say the phrase, to infinity and beyond, Toy Story comes rushing back with Buzz Lightyear, right? There's certain, there's certain phrases that come back. And this last week, as, as I've been reading through and dwelling on this passage, there's, there's a phrase that's come back and it reminds me of a specific person from my life, um, her name, is, her name is Darlene, and she was the receptionist at the church that I worked at before moving here to Morgan Hill, and she um, was there. And so I, I, before coming here, I worked at a church, and it was in downtown Chicago. And if you've ever worked in an urban setting, you know that security is just a little bit higher in urban settings than it is in rural or suburban places, right? And so even though it was a very large church, there was one door during the week that was unlocked, one door that you had to go in and out anytime you left or entered the building. And right when you walked in that door, for me, for 12 years before she retired this last year, was a lady named Darlin. And every single day, this literally has happened thousands of times in my life now over the many years I worked there. When I would walk in and I would say, good morning, Darlene, how are you? She would always say, I'm blessed. How are you? I am blessed. Now, it wouldn't be if you looked at Darlene's life. It's not like she lived some like extravagant life. Like, wow, how fortunate and lucky she is. She lived a very normal, hardworking life. You know, she raised children and grandchildren. She commuted to work and would say this after taking a bus to the red line, taking it up to downtown and another bus to get to work. And if you've ever taken public transportation, you know, that's not necessarily a blessing sometimes. So... So she wasn't talking about her circumstances, but she was always reflecting and lived this pattern of reflecting on who she was in Jesus, that no matter what the earthly circumstances look like, that she was blessed. And this passage that we're going to look at today in Ephesians 1 talks about how blessed each and every one of us are who are followers of Jesus. 
that even if the circumstances of our life are uncomfortable or hard at the moment, we are blessed in him far beyond what we often realize. So if you have your Bibles, um, Ephesians chapter one, it's also in the worship guide that you received when you entered today. Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse one says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this book that we're going to be spending the next few months in is written by Paul. Paul was a Jewish man who was a Jewish leader at the time of Jesus and was so passionate about his Judaism that he actually was persecuting this movement known as Christians who were following after Jesus. He was active in persecuting and having them killed. And it was on a trip that he was taking where he was going to persecute more Christians that Jesus showed up. He encountered Jesus and his life was utterly transformed as he surrendered his life and spent most of his life then as what we would now refer to as a missionary. A missionary, one who would go around to different cities and different towns, preach the message of Jesus and he established churches where he went. His specific mission that he was sent by God would to be a missionary to the Gentiles or to go to non-Jewish places and tell them about Jesus. One of those places that he went is this town called Ephesus. That's the letter to the Ephesians. Now, Ephesus is a coastal city on the Aegean Sea. And for the 99% of you who don't remember where that is from geography class, that's in modern day Turkey, close to where Greece is, across the, the sea from where Greece is. And Paul started this church himself. It's recounted for us in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. He went there for three months, established this church, left to go somewhere else, came back a year later and actually stayed there for three years. This is one of the longest places that Paul ever spent in a single church setting. He was often moving, sometimes even just a week or two in places. So he was there for a substantial amount of period of time. And his love for them is seen later in the book of Acts where when he's journeying back to Jerusalem, he kind of goes by where they'll be. He calls and has the elders from this church come out and meet them and he gives them this charge to them. He most likely is writing this letter to them while he is imprisoned in Rome. Most likely he's in prison in Rome. It would have been about four years since he had seen them in person. It likely was a letter sent along with the same time that the book of Colossians was sent. They likely were sent and delivered by the same person. And it was likely a letter to be read first in Ephesus, but then probably shared at the churches around as was common in that time. And to start off this letter, he focuses in on the blessings that we have in Jesus. And so today our outline is we're gonna look at four blessings that we have in Jesus. If you're a fill in the blank person, there's some fill in the blanks on the back of your worship guide as we walk through these. Verses three to 14 of Ephesians one are actually one sentence. So you remember when your English teacher told you in elementary school that run on sentences were bad? She was wrong. They are good sometimes. Paul loves a long, long sentence. And so we're gonna take actually two weeks to literally go through one long sentence in the original languages. So verse three says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
See, the first blessing we have in Jesus is the blessing of being chosen. The blessing of being chosen. It says here that we have been blessed in Christ, in verse three. And that's one of the key phrases in the book of Ephesians and specifically in this argument here. You'll see so many times repeated just in our verses today where it talks about in Christ or in him. Every good thing that we have from God comes to us through Jesus. Everything that we have from God comes to us through Jesus Christ And it's in him that we have every spiritual blessing. And then it says in the heavenly places. Now, when he says heavenly places, he's not referring to something that we will just experience in the future, right? Sometimes people think of heaven as like, okay, heaven's somewhere that I'm gonna go when I'm gonna die. He's not thinking here though of a physical location. When talking about the heavenly places, he's thinking of the realm in which Jesus oversees, And when the Bible talks about heaven, it's not so much talking just about a destination that we will go one day, but about getting more of heaven into our lives here and now on earth. So these blessings are not just blessings that we experience in the future, but they're blessings that if you're a follower of Jesus, you experience them now and today. And he says that one of these blessings in verse four is that he chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, it feels good to be chosen, right? Do you remember as a kid in elementary school when you're playing dodgeball or kickball, and maybe it's just because it was your best friend and you told him you'd give him your lunch later, but they picked you first and you were like, yes, I got chosen. First pick, I got chosen. Or I still remember for me many years ago when I was applying to colleges, right? And you kind of have these schools that are like your backup schools. Then you have these other schools that are, I'll apply to here because if I somehow ace my ACT and they give me a full ride, like I'll gladly go there. And then you have that dream school, right? Like, man, this would be the perfect situation. It works, all of these things. And I, I had that myself. And I remember this was back in the day, for some of you kids, this would be hard to understand, but they actually sent letters to a mailbox to a, if you got into college or not. And so every day I knew they were going out soon. So you would go to the mail and never as a high schooler was I so excited to check the mail, right? And you look through, there's nothing, there's nothing. And then there's something from it. And you just see the address and you're like, oh, I know that's from my college. And you open it up. And I was so excited. I still remember the day when I got it and I opened it and I had been accepted into my dream college, right? They chose me. But here's the thing, when you're chosen like that, and so much of being chosen for things today, we're chosen because of some merit, something we have, right? You get into a college because you got good grades and you did good on your ACT and you volunteered and all these other things. God doesn't choose us because of the good things we done, because we have done something to earn it. It says he chose us in him. When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. God chose us before we existed, before anything existed. And so it's not because of some earning or some merits that we have, but it's because of his love, his grace that he chooses us. See, this is referring to these verses are are part of what theologians call the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination in which one one defines it as God's sovereign grace in which he chooses us, not because of any merits or earning, but because of his grace. 
See, this is a doctrine that's key to understand as we go through the book of Ephesians. If we don't get the fact that God chooses us not because of anything we've done, but because of his love, it's hard to understand God's grace as he talks about how in Ephesians 2, in a few weeks, we're gonna see how we are saved by grace and it's not of our own doing, but it's a gift of God. It's fundamental to see how God choosing us before the foundation of the world has to happen for this to be true. Now, sometimes... This doctrine can be a little difficult to understand, certainly, and sometimes it rubs people the wrong way because oftentimes when people talk about this doctrine, what happens is that people move to extremes on one side or the other. And sometimes one of those extremes that people that, that kind of push back against that are, are a wrong challenge is that, well, because God chooses people before the foundation of the world, there's no need for a response, because God will just magically choose them and then they will be followers of Jesus. I'm not saying that because the Bible clearly also does not say that. The Bible says that we, each and every one of us, are responsible to submit, to believe, to respond in faith to the message of Jesus Christ. See, it's one of those things where there's certain things in heaven where God will make clear to us. I still wonder if in heaven, we still will not fully understand this, right? Are we saved because God chooses us? Or are we saved because we responded in faith? The answer is yes. <laughs> How does that work? Ask God, and still, I don't even know if our human minds will understand it. And so by saying that God chooses us, we are not saying that you should never share the gospel with someone. We're not saying that we don't have to respond in faith. Yes, we do. Some of the other pushback, though, sometimes with this doctrine is, well, if God chooses me, then I can just live my life however I want. Right? If he chose me before the foundation of the world, then it doesn't really matter how I live my life. Great, God chose me. Let me go do my own thing. That's great. I'll just do whatever I want. But notice what it says in verse four, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. These words, holy and blameless, are the same words used when it talks about the Old Testament sacrifices that were gonna be pure and acceptable to God. There were things that, that this is what is acceptable to God, something holy and blameless, and that's the life that God expects of those who he chooses. See, with the great privilege of being chosen comes the great responsibility to live like it, to be holy and blameless before God. And so the doctrine of election is not some doctrine where we just say, well, I can live however we want, or I don't need to follow the Bible. But no, it calls us to submit to Jesus even more when we see this amazing fact that God has chosen us. But why would he choose why would he choose us? Let's continue. At the end of verse four, it says this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, the second blessing we have in Jesus is the blessing of being adopted the blessing of being adopted. Lest we think this doctrine of election is some cold and callous thing that God does, his motive in doing it is there. It's in love. That's why he does it. It's in his love that he chooses and he predestines us. But notice he doesn't just predestine us to belong to him, but he predestines us for adoption to himself. 
And specifically here, it says adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, this is not some terminology where it's like, lucky you guys, lucky men, you get to be adopted as sons. Sorry, women, you miss out on this. That is not at all what he is referring to here. This has nothing to do with gender. But why he is specifically using the word here that means adopted as sons is this. In their cultural context, an inheritance, anything that a father would pass down was passed down to sons. It was passed down to sons specifically. And so he, by including here, you've been adopted as sons. He's not saying this is a male thing and not a female thing. He's saying for each and every one of us, when God brings us into his family, we are full heirs to what he has for us. That's why it includes there that we are adopted as sons. See, adoption was a thing well known throughout the Roman Empire in which Paul lived during this time. He likely wrote this from Rome. And scholars point out that it's helpful in understanding Roman context in adoption as we think about what it means that God adopts us. In fact, Paul only talks about adoption in scripture when he's writing to places that are well known with Roman customs and Roman practices. That's why he writes it to this town, which is this city, which is well known. That's why he writes it when he writes the book of Romans. So in, in this time, in this world, Adoption was not just something that was done because some parents saw like an outcast child or a child without parents and, and they said, I'm going to do something out of the kindness of my heart and adopt them. But it was actually something different. In that time, people of privilege and importance would say, I need someone to carry on my family legacy. And because it's so important, I'm going to go out and adopt someone to carry on the legacy of my family. In fact, at this time, the ruling Caesar over Rome, and actually there was a line of four or five in a row where they were there, not because they were the physical descendant of Caesar, but Caesar went out, found the man who he wanted, succeeded him, and adopted him as his child. Adoption in their context was the highest privilege that someone of power and authority and significance would come in and say, I want you to be in my family. That's their context when they think of adoption. They're thinking of something that Caesar would do to raise up the next person. Which is why some scholars, a scholar wrote, adoption is the apex of redemptive grace and privilege. See, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, we are children of God. We are children of God. And this explains to us the unconditional love that God has for us. See, I, I've started to realize this more and more as I've been a parent. Now, if you're not a parent, you can still understand in some measure the unconditional love of Jesus. But for those of you who are parents, we have a, a unique insight on the unconditional love of God. Because our kids may drive us crazy. We may lose sleep over them. We may lose um, some hair. Our hair may turn gray. We may lose a lot of money, but man, do we love them. And there's nothing that that child could do that could make us stop loving them. No matter how much they may drive us nuts, we don't love them because they've earned it. We love them, why? Because that's our kid. It's just because they are our child. That's why we love them. That's the kind of love that God has towards us. Not because of something we do or some performance we have or some standard we've met. God loves you. Why? Because you're his child. And that's enough. 
And that's why the love of God towards us is unconditional and it doesn't depend on it because we are his children. We've been adopted into his family. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes this, which I just found so powerful. He says, God adopts us out of his free love, not because our character and record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the opposite. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us sinners as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild, yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. It sounds crazy that God would exalt us and treat us as he treats Jesus, but when we are adopted as his children, that's exactly what it means. The security, the love that's found, not just because God chooses us, but because he adopts us into his family. Verse seven, in him, notice the language continuing throughout, in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. See, the third blessing that we have in Jesus is the blessing of being redeemed. The blessing of being redeemed. This language of of redemption is typical for them of someone who was in slavery and someone else came, did what they could not do, paid the price, bought them out of slavery, and now they are freed. In the biblical mindset, especially in the Old Testament, when when it talks about redemption, it often says, do you not remember, O Israel, that you were slaves in Egypt? You were in bondage for hundreds of years. God says, and I came and I redeemed you out of that and I brought you into the promised land. The freedom that we have because someone else acted on our behalf. See, and often... When the Bible talks about redemption, it looks at the price that was paid to purchase it. It's not just a handshake that happens, but the price had to be paid for someone to be redeemed. And here it talks about the price of our redemption. Verse seven, in him we have redemption. And what's the price? Through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, of of our sin, according to the riches of God's grace. See, when we say that salvation is a free gift, we mean it's free for us, but it costs somebody something. And it costs Jesus his life. It was purchased for us. The cost of our freedom was his death on the cross. We are bought through his blood. Do you remember the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Or like kids these days, like, it's great. The government keeps sending us free money. And it's like, yeah, that's, it's not really free. That's not exactly how that works, right? We, we can think, wow, this freedom that we have in Jesus, wow, it's so great that I just get to be freed. But someone paid for us to be free because we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage. And Jesus, through his blood, frees us from that. See, I remember when, when I went to college, I was probably like many of you, quite broke, And so when I needed new clothes, I went to the most logical place, the thrift store, 
the thrift store. And it is amazing how quick your standards go down in terms of prices when you shop at a thrift store, isn't it? Like you're looking at t-shirts and you're like, oh, which ones are half off? I don't want to pay 50 cents. I only want to pay 25 cents for a shirt, right? And you're going to specifically look at those. And then you find something and you're like, oh, this is pretty nice. It fits my size. And you'll get the price tag and you're like, oh, $2. I don't know if I want to spend $2 on a shirt. Like that's a lot of money when I can spend 20 cents on these five shirts over here. Man, I don't, I don't know, right? And suddenly your, your standards get thrown off and you're like, yeah, I could have that, but, but it's just too expensive. It's too costly for me. When it came to you and your life, there was no price that was too high for God. He doesn't look at us and say, well, I would save you, but the price to pay is too much. No, the highest price has been paid because he sent his one and only son to pay the price for our sin. God loves us so much, there was no price too high on your life. And he redeemed us from our sin through his grace by sending his son, and it's through his blood that we can be redeemed and set free from sin. He continues, verse eight. It says this, his riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, the fourth blessing that we have in Jesus is the blessing of knowing God's purpose. The blessing of knowing God's purpose. See here, he says that we have now been made known the mystery of God's will. By mystery, he doesn't mean something that we still don't understand, but he's saying historically, we used to not understand the purpose. It used to be closed to us, but now it has been revealed. It was previously hidden secret, and now it is made known. And what is the mystery of his will that according to God's purpose, which he gave us in Jesus, that when the fullness of time came to unite all things in him. This phrase as a plan for the fullness of time is a very unique phrase. And it could be summarized or stated another way. It said that to bring everything to the main point or to sum, to sum it all up, what's the purpose of it all? He's saying, if you take all of history, everything that's ever happened and you make it an addition problem, what's the answer at the bottom? It's to unite all things in Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of all of history. Now I wanna help make something clear that can be summarized from this, but I think we need to make sure we understand it. If it's all about Jesus, then it's not about me. If it's all about Jesus, then it's not about you. The purpose of history, the purpose of our lives are not about us. It's to unite all things and for Jesus to be honored and glorified. So how do we know if we're living this out? How do we know if the purpose of our lives, like Paul says here, the purpose of all of history is that everything would find its unity to be united into Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. How do we know if we are being an active part of that? One way I think to measure it 
is just to think of three categories for our lives that all of us have in some way and how we are using these things. To think of our time, our talents, and our treasures and how we're using it. Think of your time. We all have the same amount of time in each day. And have you ever noticed that the things that you value, you will make time for? If you really value it, you'll make time, gentlemen, to go home and watch the 49ers later today. You'll make time. You got stuff going on. You will make time if that's your value to watch football. You'll make time for what's important to you. See, when it comes to following Jesus, so often our excuse is, well, when I have the time to do it, I will. When I have more time. Friends, the reality is if we wait to follow Jesus till we have enough time to do so, we never will. Time is now. Do we value it enough to make time for Jesus in our lives? Not just on Sundays. Yes, you have, you're here. But tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, are you making time for Jesus each and every day in your life? Talent. God has uniquely gifted each and every one of us. But are we using the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given us to serve ourselves or to serve him and his church? See, so often we're like, wow, we think this in our heads. I'm so glad that God gifted me with this. Now I can use it to make myself successful. I can use it to make myself look great. And God says, I gave that to you so you would make my name great, not your name. But so often we use our talents for our own selfish purposes rather than to serve him to serve his church. Or think of treasure, the resources that God has given us. Kind of like time, what we value, we will spend, we will find money for, right? If you value travel, you'll spend less on something else. Maybe you won't eat out so you can do this. The joke, and I'm a cyclist, so I kind of laugh at this when it hits home for me. The joke as a cyclist is you're not a real cyclist unless your bike costs more than your car, right? Because your bike's what you value. Your car's just a way to get to the trail, right? And you'll find, you'll find the money for something you really value. See, what Jesus said is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because Jesus isn't after your money. He's after you. He's after your heart. And what you spend your money on shows what you truly value in your life. So time, talents, and treasure, is it about us or is it about Jesus? See, we wake up, every single one of us, and our world revolves around us. For me, as a pastor, I wake up and the first thing I think about is my schedule, my to-do list, my plans, my problems. That's the first thing I think about every day, is me. And that's natural for all of us to do. So much so that Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, we are so instinctively and profoundly self-centered that we don't think we are. (laughs) The world revolves around us. But the purpose of God's plan that he's revealed to us is that he wants to unite all things in heaven and on earth under not our name, but under Jesus's name. So my challenge to you this week is to make your life less about you and more about Jesus. What is one thing, not 500 things, what's one thing that you can do this week to make your life less about you and more about Jesus? Maybe it's in how you spend your time or your talent or your treasure. Maybe it's something else the Holy Spirit can put on your heart. 
But if the purpose of all of history, of everything is to unite everything under Jesus, that he be honored and glorified, then the purpose of our lives should be to come alongside God in that. That not our name would be great, but that Jesus's name would be great. Friends, we have every blessing in him. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us with a love that we will never understand because he loves us from the perfect heart of a father for his children. He's redeemed us through his blood on the cross. And he calls us to participate in the ultimate mission of having Jesus be the focal point of all things in history. So how can we make our lives less about us and more about him? God, we thank you that you have so blessed us. God, as we sung earlier, we don't earn it and we could never deserve it. But God, you have lavished your mercy and grace in our lives. God, we thank you for the blessings that we have in Jesus. And I pray that you would cause us as we live our lives this next week to help it be more about you and less about us that we would participate in your mission for the world, not in our mission for our worlds. God, may you be honored and glorified in our lives. I pray that we would see the blessings that we have, even as we leave this place, God, that you have chosen us, that we are adopted as children of God and the significance of our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray this in his name. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.